Hello, welcome to another week of React Roundup. I am your host today, Paige Niedringhouse, and I am joined by our panelist, TJ Van Toll. Hey, everybody. And our special guest today is Jack Franklin. Welcome, Jack. Hello, thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So Jack, why don't you give our listeners a little introduction of yourself? Tell us why you're famous and what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, sure. So my name's uh, Jack Franklin. I'm based, as you can probably figure by the, the voice, just outside of London in the UK. I uh, spend my days currently working at Google on the Chrome developer tools. And I think I certainly wouldn't say famous, but the reason that I think we're chatting today is a blog post I wrote uh, way back in March. It's taken that long to, to find a slot to schedule about React and Svelte. So I, I built kind of side projects in React, spent a bit of time converting it to Svelte and just wrote a big blog post really comparing the two, not in a sort of which is best, kind of which framework is the best kind of way, but just comparing and sort of noting down my, my thoughts. And I think that resonates with a bunch of people. And I think we'll probably talk a little bit about that today. So which one's the best? <laughs> Neither. Neither. Oh, come on. Neither or all of them, depending on your opinion. <laughs> I won't get drawn into that, TJ. <laughs> so we will have a link for any listeners who haven't had a chance to read the blog post yet, but can you give us a little bit of some of the differences that you found as you were doing this project and what what was what was nice about React, what was better in Svelte, just kind of the the differences between the two. Yeah, absolutely. A bit of context is when I wrote this, I was sort of a fairly experienced React developer. I've been using it for a number of years, sort of professionally. Svelte is very much something I'd only used in, in side projects. So I, I don't want to come across as necessarily an expert in, in all of them. Um, for me, I, I really enjoyed Svelte in that it it felt like it got out of the way a little bit more. I think the, the blog post ends by talking about uh, use effect. And I think I just call it admin, which is maybe a little bit unfair. But for me, it felt like, particularly in the context of I'm just, I'm working outside of my day job on a little side project that I'm kind of hacking on. I liked that Svelte didn't necessarily, I didn't have to think about use effect and the dependencies you pass into there and avoiding stale closures or using like use ref to store some reference to a thing outside of React's world. And so for me, that was the main gist of the post, I think, was that I understand why React does those things. And there are benefits, obviously, to it doing all that. But in terms of, I just want to spin up a little side project, Svelte was a lot of fun just to get up and running with. I would say that some sides of Svelte I didn't like as, as much. So I've, I've always 
loved with React the fact that there's no templating language as such, really. You just, you know, you've got a list of things you want to map into some HTML. You just map them like you would if they're a regular array of stuff. And and for me, that's really nice, not having to learn a, a sort of uh, bespoke templating language. So that will always draw me to React. I, I don't think anyone can convince me uh, otherwise on, on that <laughs> one. So that's one of my personal favorites. But I think Svelte did a lot of other things quite nicely too. It, it's maybe slightly more opinionated than React in terms of it just ships with decent CSS support out of the box. So you, <laughs> you add styles to your components. It's crazy, then, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, Mind nuts. And then, <laughs> and then you, it scopes those styles for you. It can detect if any of the CSS you've written is unused and the compiler will warn you about it. So bits like that were are nicer. And you know, React's position of we don't have an opinion on this, a lot of the time is really good. It gives you the freedom to pick what is best for you and the whatever you're working on. But again, in the context of I'm on a side project, I just kind of like that Svelte has that solved. I don't have to think about it. And I don't have to go and decide which CSS library I'm going to use and configure it in whichever bundler I'm going to use and, and all that stuff. I, I enjoyed Svelte a lot in that regard. Yeah, I found it interesting because I I recently worked on an app that was in Svelte and so your article resonated quite a bit with me because it's like, oh, I just sort of recently kind of done the same sort of process. And I feel very similar to how you do. And I, I think, first of all, for anybody that hasn't tried Svelte before listening to this, I'd say, and you can let me know if you agree with this, that Svelte and React are way more similar than they are different. Like they're they're pretty much solving the same problem. The, the approach, you write components, there's a way of, the, you put your logic in a place, you have a template, a, a way of like templating out the, the markup you that comes out of these components. So for the most part, the libraries are somewhat interchangeable. Like you can, you can solve your web dev problems with either. But I do think that Svelte, kind of like you articulated, is like almost like a cleaned up version. Like it, it kind of smooths over some of the wonkier bits of React, like... Like use effect, like I don't think anybody like I think you say in your your post that you can understand why use effect is there, but like no one is ever like happy to use use effect. And I always feel like every time I ship a new use effect to production, there's a small part of me that worries that's like I am probably creating like a memory <laughs> leak in my users' <laughs> browsers or something like potentially go could go wrong. And like not having to worry about that is just kind of nice. And there's a couple other like little syntactical things that Svelte does that I, I I feel are quite nice. So overall, it just feels like a slightly more polished version or something that maybe just learned from React and because uh, Svelte came afterwards. Yeah, now, I, I actually Sorry, I haven't you. actually worked with Svelte myself. It's been on the list, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. So one thing that I always wonder about is how does how do libraries like Svelte handle data fetching? Because I know that with React, it's a big thing when you need an API server, whether it's using Next and you've got built-in API routes, or if you've got just a Create React app on the front end, you have to create your own Express server. So does Svelte help make that easier than, or do you have to also stand up an Express server on the back end for those types of third-party calls? Yeah, you would need the server um, of, of whatever description or whatever server you, you would like. It's similar to React in, in that way, really. It, it kind of leaves that entirely up to you. And whilst the code, as TJ was saying, a lot, they're similar in a lot of ways. And the code for fetching from some APIs, bar the use effect kind of wrapper, is pr would be pretty identical in both, I would say. Got it. Yeah, I will say one thing I hit with Spelt is that if there is a downside, it's not about the library itself, but it's because it's not as big with React. Like, 
React, you Google any of these things and you're going to find like probably more than you want, like a million different solutions and spelt. <laughs> I think because it's bigger, it's not it's not as popular. We'll see where that that goes over time. But like I, I started to run into issues where it was like where I started to look into more like production level problems, like in tooling things, whereas React, I could find I don't know, libraries, tools, businesses to help me. Lots of times was felt that stuff just was either not there or pretty new or like I found myself like on some GitHub repo with 12 stars going like, oh, man, is this <laughs> is this where I'm at? Like, is can I trust this? So like, it's, so I feel like that, like, I am curious, like, whether like Spelt always does well in things like JS surveys and such. But I do wonder like whether Spelt can actually like take the next step, like whether we'll talk about it as like a legit competitor in terms of market share. So I do kind of wonder what your all thought is on on that as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I found that I think I was looking for routing in Spelt, I think. And if you're using React, you reach <laughs> yeah. for React Router straight away, or you're using something like Next or any of those things. And that's done. Problem solved. I think Svelte, at least the time I was looking, there were three or four. It wasn't really clear which one was, quote unquote, the best uh, or the most kind of up to date yep. and, and relevant. So I, I agree. But I think like you, it might just be because Svelte is a, sort of earlier on its journey, as it were. They, they are also working on the thing. I think it's called Svelte Kit. And I would caveat this, but I've not used it yet. But I've I've seen people talking about it. It seems to be more like Next.js level sort of thing for Svelte. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. I think if that kind of works as it claims it does and, and kind of does well, that could be a really interesting tool and a way to sort of push Svelte into more people. I also think the maintainer of Svelte, Rich Harris, was just hired by Vercel to work full time on Svelte. So I, I think there's promising signs, but I agree it's, it's not as mature an ecosystem just yet. Yes to all of that. I think I saw what you're talking about maybe middle of last week. So right when the U.S. holiday for Thanksgiving was going on and everybody just stopped paying attention to everything. But yes, I think he was just hired, which is really exciting. They've got funding. They've got he's got all, a whole team now of people to help him kind of develop it. Vercel's got to spend those millions on something, right? So <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack, I know that you said that you you wrote this article back in March, but it sounds like maybe since then you haven't had as much time to write React. So what have you been working on since then? Have you been? Is it been more spelt, or has it been completely different types of code? So completely different. I, I haven't had much time for side projects and things uh, since then, unfortunately. And day to day, we don't use React or Svelte. Or in fact, any of the sort of quote unquote big frameworks, we primarily work with custom elements as in the ones that are built into the browser. So um, I do a lot of work with components still, but I've shifted away from one particular framework to more what you would sort of cringingly call the platform. I think use the platform is what, <laughs> what all the people on Twitter say. Um, so I spend most of my days doing that. And, and actually, that is something I enjoyed about Svelte. You can see that some of the things it does and the way it's designed mimic web components, custom elements a little bit better. Uh, That's not to say you can't achieve the same things in React. They just take slightly different approaches. So that was another plus. And I think I mentioned that in the article for me, like Svelte has the concept of slots when you want to to take a component and push some children into it. And that is exactly what web components do and the exact same terminology as well, which I don't think is is a coincidence. So I enjoyed that about Svelte. But yeah, day to day, though, I'm just uh, web components at the moment, no framework required. So I'm going to ask kind of a basic question, but since you work on the the Chrome Dev Tools, I think that's a tool that I would bet that probably every single person listening to this uses, or at least has used fairly extensively. But we don't have a ton of visibility into like 
you know, how the how the sausage is made sort of thing. So maybe you could just give us like the 101 level of like, how are the Chrome Dev tools built, right? Like, uh, who works on this? Like, what's the architecture like, the, the deployment, like any like fun facts that you could share that like your average person using this might not know? Yeah, sure. It's a really good question. And something that I had no idea on until I joined the team. Uh, either. <laughs> so uh, some people don't even realize that the Chrome Dev tools are a, a web app. They are HTML, CSS, and well, JavaScript, but it's all TypeScript uh, authored. Now we finished a migration of about 18 months to move everything to TypeScript quite recently. Oh, wow. Which was um, a big project, but a very beneficial one in terms of code quality and developer experience and, and so on. So yeah, it's a regular old app. You can run it just like a regular old app sort of. Um, and kind of <laughs> just like a web app, it, it talks to an API just rather than most people obviously think of an API as querying a server, getting some JSON back. We talk over a thing called CDP, which is the Chrome DevTools protocol. And this is how the how DevTools gets all its information from effectively the backend. So when most people have a front-end app with a backend, you know, as Paige said earlier, Express.js server, whatever server it, it may be, our backend is just the, the browser it, itself. And we talk to it over CDP, which is really very close to making requests for JSON. Uh, and so, for example, if you load up DevTools and you type into the console, you know, console.log foo, we send a message to the backend to evaluate that and we figure out what the result is and we, we give that back to you in the console. If you load up the elements panel, we have to figure out all the elements that are on the page. So we send a request to the browser and say, hey, what elements are on the page? So it, although it looks different and obviously some of the code is different and the backend is sort of loads of C++ that I don't pretend to understand at all, <laughs> um, it, it is pretty close to a regular web app in terms of the, the inner workings. And uh, the Chrome DevTools protocol is open source. You can go and look at it. You can look at all the messages um, you can send. The front end is open source as well. So it's, it is more web app-like than, than everyone would think. I think you can even, under the Chrome DevTools, you can enable an experiment called the protocol monitor. If you do that, you just get this big table and it literally will show you all the API commands that the DevTools is making at any point in time. So if you want to, you can figure out what it's doing. You can figure out how it works. Uh, it's not quite as magical as it, as it seems, but it does take a bit of getting used to. So if something goes wrong, can you use the Chrome Dev Tools to debug the Chrome Dev Tools? Yeah, that's what I spend most of my days doing is using DevTools on DevTools. Um, it's very confusing when you've got two DevTools windows open. I tend to have one in the dark theme and one in the light theme as my way to distinguish. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and this works really well until you've broken DevTools and you need to fix it. And you can no longer inspect DevTools on DevTools because you've broken your DevTools. So it, it, can, it can get a bit messy. Uh, but it, it is possible, yeah, to, to, we do inspect DevTools with DevTools, you know. So when I'm debugging something I'm trying to figure out, I'm literally using DevTools to do it, just like anyone else. Uh, yeah. So are you are you actually, like, coding something in, like, a VS Code terminal locally? Or are you using some sort of a browser-based coding platform since your stuff actually lives in the browser itself? Uh, it's, it's all locally. So we, we check out a Git repository locally and then uh, fire it up in whatever editor of choice. And then there's just a command that will run it locally. Uh, but when, when I say command to run it locally, it just runs uh, Chromium locally with my local DevTools attached to it. So it's not like I can fire DevTools up in an isolated window. I still just have to load up the browser and inspect it. Uh, we, we do have some tools that let us render parts of DevTools just in a browser window as normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that, that's quite good because, you know, DevTools is quite large. The act of refreshing it and loading up a browser every time you want to inspect something is, is quite slow. So we have the ability to say, can't think of an example off the top of my head, but like 
render this component just in a browser window, and then you can inspect that and debug that as well. So that's something we're working on doing more is whilst we do want to obviously and have to test code in DevTools in a browser running as, as everyone does, when we're working on sort of very isolated feature, it's really nice to just render that in a browser tab and just let the play around with that too. So yeah, but it all works. We don't really have too much special tooling around it that let us render it specially or differently. Uh, it's pretty much close to as users render it just in their browser. So I, I am curious because you you'd said like basically custom elements is the the core approach that the dev tools takes throughout. Are you using any like um, any tools to help manage the complexity? Because I imagine the the dev tools are not the world's simplest project. So are you using any Google's had a few frameworks over the years for working with web components and custom elements? Are you using any of those? Is it something like handwritten for the dev tools? How does all that work? So we use a small library called lit HTML. Uh, so there, there's oh, a framework yeah. called lit element, which, yeah, that is a Google project and pause them, but that's maintained by a, a team at Google. Uh, but underneath that, there's a little library called lit HTML, which is really just the templating part. So you can just give it a string with HTML inside, and then it will, uh, it will just render that efficiently and re-render it as required. So we use that, but other than that, there aren't really, there's no big framework going on. It's mostly vanilla. Uh, JavaScript or TypeScript, we of course have a few kind of wrappers and helpers as required. Uh, but broadly, broadly, it's not too bad because a lot of the complexity, at least we try and scope things down to, to panels or, or smaller. So although you're working on those big dev tools, if I need to work on the elements panel, I can kind of zoom in on that and not worry about every other panel. Um, we have helpers to things like loading user settings or shared data that does need to exist across all, all of dev tools and update. Um, but Broadly, I think we do quite a good job of managing what is quite a big, hefty application and, and keeping it not too complex to work on. On the whole, there are still some parts of the code base that are more of a struggle than others, shall we say. <laughs> the app was not always built with custom elements as an approach, correct? So I'm, I'm curious, like, what was the onus behind that migration and like, what are some of the, the benefits you got from doing that as well? Yeah, uh, good question. So just to be clear, we, we haven't finished that migration. So the DevTools right now is a mix ah. of old and new. So the old system was, you know, bear in mind, we're talking about an app that is at least 10 years old. It must be more, in fact, as I say that. And so we're talking 10, 15 years ago, React, Angular, Vue, Ember, all these things, they weren't around. In fact, the idea of building with components wasn't really a thing. So there is a very bespoke UI widget system in DevTools. That, and just to be clear, at, at the time, the developers working on it, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to build because there was no alternative. The browser didn't do anything to help us here. So they built that. And so large parts of DevTools is, is based on that. But what we want to do now is move to something that's that's more modern. And ultimately for us, web components are supported by the browser. They're built in. We have no framework there to maintain. The performance of them is good because the browser implements them. Don't get me wrong, it's still possible for us to write code that performs badly. But we get some things for free, if you like, because <laughs> the browser just does it uh, for us. We don't have to worry about the people maintaining custom elements disappearing or changing priorities or not helping maintain their thing because we use the browser. Uh, you know, even if they somehow were deprecated in sort of the web standards, which I think is very unlikely, they would never disappear. We'd have plenty of time to figure out what to do. Uh, and so really that was one of the main benefits. And I think the other benefit was just the authoring experience. I think there's a reason that all the frameworks that 
push components are popular and that's because they're a good way to build they let you put your components into these boxes they let you isolate complexity they let you scope css they let you do all sorts of really useful things and we wanted that experience uh, building them on the on the front end for for dev tools hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Absolutely. And this is kind of a, I guess this is something that I heard a few months ago and maybe it's true. Maybe it's a rumor, but Sometimes it's really useful for me to be able to put my dev tools on the right-hand side of my browser because I'm doing something that's more mobile-based or whatever. Did I see that that might be going away and it might only you might only be able to put it at the bottom of your browser from now on? That's news to me, Paige. Okay. If, that, if that is happening, I don't know anything about that. And I, <laughs> I, I, I would be very surprised. I doubt we'll, we would make any changes like that. Okay, I was very surprised to see that. I mean, it's amazing that you can take something that is so desktop layout centric and put it on the side anyway to begin with but it is so so convenient when i do need to do something and and you know a wide browser screen is not not what i'm going for but i thought that i had seen somewhere that maybe they were they were considering removing that feature because i can imagine the difficulty of making sure everything lays out in a nice way that's still readable for users so i hope that that is not true <laughs> I, I don't believe that to be true no, we do. The good thing is because it's been around for so long, actually the, the panels kind of code that, that powers up the panes and all the splits, that is pretty robust now. And actually that is some of the stuff that is in the legacy, if you like, legacy is a poor word for it, the older UI system, it's not components, but it's it's a good example of stuff that we're not looking to rebuild or move to components anytime soon because it's so battle tested, it's hard. And as you say, you can put dev tools on the left, on the bottom, on the right, and you can undock it and it just kind of works and it adjusts itself. It's easy to, to drag panes around as you want. So no, I, I don't think anyone is in any rush to, to get rid of that. I use dev tools on the right by default. That's my go-to uh, default when I'm working in a browser. So I certainly won't be removing it myself. <laughs> I'm also hashtag DevTools on the right. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the one I can't get behind is DevTools on the left. I don't know why, but it just feels very off to me. So I'm not a fan of that one. Yeah, yeah I, I've never tried that. And I have my VS Code panel set up to default to the left, which is how it just comes out of the box. And I've, I've seen those people who have gone right, and I think that they're just out of their minds. <laughs> but I can't imagine having DevTools over there now that we talk about it. <laughs> Everyone's got their different different quirks how they like to have things laid out yeah because see i'm one of those weirdos i put my vs code on the right the, the folder that so at least i'm oh, consistent no, no. No, no. yeah <laughs> right you're better than me <laughs> so one thing that i did want to ask about since you're talking about how you kind of have migrated towards web components you also said that you migrated from javascript to typescript over the period of a, a year and a half or so so how first how did you do that 
How did you, because you've said that it is a large, and I can only imagine how large this code base much must be, but how did you, I guess, go about it in a way where you didn't have to do everything at once or or you decided what should be migrated versus what should just be left as legacy? And and how did you guys approach that? Yeah, so there were a lot of files to change. I, I don't know, I think there's at least 150,000 lines of, of JavaScript, but I think it's probably more now because that that was a stat from an up. I'll share a link for the the kind of show notes because we did a talk at Chrome Dev Summit last year about the migration. So I'll share that for anyone who wants to to dive more into it. But what we did is we did it in a way that we could do file by file. And so the reason it took so long isn't because we we weren't only working on that migration for eighteen months. That would have not been the best use of time. So <laughs> we needed to be able to work on the migration whilst landing features, fixing bugs, all the all the usual stuff that any development team has to do. So we figured out we could do it file by file. And actually, then what we did is um, we we kind of, we almost cheated in a way. We moved everything to TypeScript, but in TypeScript at the top of the file, you can put, I think it's at TS no check or TS disable or something. There's, there's a comment that basically tells TypeScript, like, just ignore this file. Like, <laughs> yes, you're technically checking it, but I just don't want you to actually check this file. And so we did that kind of in one big go. We moved everything to TypeScript in quotes, but disabled TypeScript on all those files. But what that meant was we could then very easily go into a file, remove that comment from the top, let TypeScript then, you know, the editor goes crazy with all the red squiggles everywhere, <laughs> and then figure out how to proceed. Uh, so that that was our approach. So we just did it bit by bit. We just asked people if they had a spare afternoon or a couple of hours, go and grab a file. We We generated a spreadsheet of every single file, but we also logged in that spreadsheet the size of that file. And, and that was really useful because it meant someone said, okay, I've only got an hour to do to do some work. I can find a file that's 10 lines of code that theoretically, at least, should be easier than a 200 line file. So we were able to just kind of dig away at it. And then when we got really close, we sort of just said, right, let's everyone drop everything because if we drop everything, we can do this in a week. We can just get the files mm-hmm. out. So we, that's the way we did it. We did, we gave ourselves some leeway. We did use, you know, there's TS expect error, which tells TypeScript to expect an error on the next line, but not not kind of actually fail the build. So we, we mm-hmm. did use that at times. We're like, you know what? It's more important that we get this migration done and we can revisit these these edge cases later on. So we we used a fair bit of that. I think you have to be pragmatic at that point. Like, should we should we stop a whole migration finishing because of this one <laughs> weird, quirky error that really is not easily solved for boring reasons? So we we gave ourselves some some room there to to wiggle. But yeah, broadly it was just get a big list of files and and get through them one by one. And it took took a while, but it was really worth it. It also brought us in line to more what a lot of a lot of Google products now are being built with TypeScript. Or if, if you were to start a new project at Google on the front end, it would probably be expected that TypeScript would be involved. And mm-hmm. so being able to get in the li- line with that would be useful. And obviously TypeScript is, uh, you know, VS Code is written in TypeScript. Everything is written in TypeScript these days. And <laughs> the benefits of that are well, well known. So we were pretty confident it would pay off uh, in the end. So I'm curious too, because one one topic that comes up on this this show quite a bit is working on best practices for working on large projects that are going to be around for a while. And I think this is probably like one of the most <laughs> one of the bigger <laughs> examples of this, because I I have to imagine there's no plans for the Chrome Dev Tools to go away, right? You mentioned like refactoring decade old code, which is a whole lot for a web development project. There's not a ton out there that are that old. So I'm curious, like. Beyond TypeScript, are there what other work do you put into like code quality, making sure things are, I guess, like maintainable for a very long period of time? Um, are there any other like things you do along those lines or tips that you'd 
care to share? Yeah, I think maybe one of the more controversial ones is uh, basically trying to avoid dependencies at, at all costs. And that, that sounds kind of silly, but if I if I go and load up any of my side projects now, there'll be 10 dependencies and some of them will have been updated and I'll need to put some effort into, into doing that. And of course, that is expected over the lifetime of the project. But what I always think about is, say the developers on DevTools 10 plus years ago, if they'd have picked whatever the, the quote, you know, best framework at the time was, was that like Knockout JS or Backbone or... Backbone, yeah, something like that. And now I was here saying, oh yeah, DevTools, we still use Backbone. You know, that wouldn't people would be like, oh, that's, that, I thought that had long gone. And so we try to stick to, to small dependencies where we need them, but also in an area that can be easily removed or updated. So I, I said earlier, we use LitHTML for the templating. Let's say suddenly overnight, LitHTML disappears. Well, the majority of our components need updating, but only the bit that renders the, the HTML needs updating. The actual logic in the component stays the same because we're not leaning on, say, a React or a Svelte or whatever to do that. And so that's the main thing. I think our bar to adding a dependency is really, really high. We have to show that it's justified um, because else we may well be better off writing it ourselves. And also to that as well, DevTools is is pretty unique. It's not always doing things that a normal, if you like, app would, would need to do. And so often an off-the-shelf dependency, which work great for your average, say, React app, isn't quite what we need. So we, we do, we're willing to write code ourselves to avoid... Uh, an additional dependency if we think that trade-off is worth it. Other than that, we put a lot of effort into code formatting and linting. So we have an extensive set of ESLint rules, uh, but not just the built-in ones, but we've extended and written maybe 20 or 30 at, at least custom ESLint rules, which I think, by the way, oh, is something wow. that a lot of more people should do. I think people think they're really hard to write, and there is a learning curve to, to get used to the concept and abstract syntax trees and how to navigate code that ESLint has passed. But you get a lot of power out of doing that. And we've you can also define fixes for your custom rules. So we've done a lot of automated migrations by defining an ESLint rule and defining how ESLint itself can fix any violations of that rule. I should probably blog about that at some point. But we, you know, they're really, I think, a secret superpower that we have. If if we want to enforce anything or we've decided that we're going to for example, I think I wrote a rule that enforces we use read-only array in TypeScript rather than array by default or something like that. I can't quite remember recently, but we just wrote a rule for it and then that's it. And you know it's it's enforced then throughout the entire code base. And that's really important as the team grows as well as you have more developers doing more things on it. It just helps keep everything consistent to some regard. So I really, really recommend doing that as code bases um, get bigger. And I think you asked me why we're switching to components. I, I touched on it earlier, but the fact that components do isolate themselves from other components and other code by design is really, really beneficial here. You can't write a component that reaches out and impacts everywhere. You can't write a component that has some CSS that will accidentally style half the page that you didn't even realize. <laughs> so all that stuff. And, and once you have that, you, you can delete CSS confidently because you can see the entire scope of what that CSS can apply to. And you can tell when that code isn't used or not. And you can even write a rule for it uh, using ESLint or whatever if you wanted to. So it's automating as many things and then thinking about how can I build in such a way where I don't impact the outside world, I think, is two of the things we do. And sorry, I've, I've gone on and on. Finally, my final thought on this topic <laughs> is there's a lot of people who think that code comments are bad. And I think that is true when the code comments are not useful. When the code there's code and then the comment above it just basically reiterates what the code does. But where code comments are useful is for that context behind what you're doing. So I was working on something today around scrolling 
and kind of the cursor moving a bit jankly and some weird stuff going on. And it took me about three or four days to figure out what was going on here. And it was a one line fix in terms of code. I, you know, I had to change like plus five to minus four or something like that. Kind of <laughs> silly. But and right now I know why that code says, you know, foo minus four. But in six months time, I'm not going to know why on earth I put minus four. Uh, the new person who's joined the team isn't going to know why I put minus four. So I had one line of code and I had about 10 lines of comments saying, this is weird. Here's the explanation for why this is weird. And then a link to the, the bug report as well in there. So for me, that's really important because there's context there for whoever, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that some of the code I write will be used in 10 years time by whoever's on the DevTools team, whether that be me or, or other people. And so then when they find that minus four and they think, oh, that's really strange, they've got that, that detail there. So I love a good change where there's a couple of lines of code and a lovely detailed comment. That's, that's one of my favorite types of changes to review. I think more people should do that and try and think less about comments being bad because I don't think they are if used correctly. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. The first dev, or the first, not dev tools, the first software team that I joined was very much of the opinion of self-documenting code. And that was the worst. It resulted in the most unreadable, chained, extremely long expressions sometimes. And it absolutely was what you're saying, you know, a new person would come onto the team, they would have no idea why this variable was named this way, or why this random function existed, what it was doing, why it was so far away from the thing it was actually impacting. So the company that I work for now, it's just me and a few other developers working on the code base. But one of the developers who started on the code base has been great about documenting stuff in in line in the files. And it is so helpful for me to get up to speed faster and understand, you know, this looks a little strange, but here's why we're doing it. Or here's a link to an article that I found that tells that is what I'm using as the solution. And it's so it's been so useful. So I, I completely agree with you that's that documenting comments and things like that to help myself and to help others in the future is definitely worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Or to help yourself in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say too, to give an example on the flip side of that, we had the very first app that I worked on, uh, first like real job type of app was this giant Java app. And there were all sorts of automated rules that required comments for like every function that you wrote had to have a comment. It had to follow a specific format. And the tricky part of that was that lots of times your your functions didn't need comments because it would just be something like the most ridiculous, obvious thing in the world. <laughs> and the fact that you had to put it forced people to like write bad comments and then <laughs> would make you sort of skim over the like the just like the boilerplate stuff. So I think it's one of those things that like it's a hard thing to ES lint. This is just sort of like a pragmatic thing. You just kind of have to trust people to be intelligent about what is the stuff that I'm writing that's going to be hard for a future person to look at this and to understand. And then what's the most helpful thing I could tell that person. So I I totally agree. It's I think it's just one of those things you got to you've got to be like burned by it and experience it before you can truly appreciate how how nice just a one line link to a, a discussion that happens at some point can be. Yeah, absolutely. We had that, we, in the performance panel in, in DevTools, we obviously give you various stats, various metrics and things and how the page is doing. And we grade those, we kind of color them differently as based on if this metric is good, bad, or okay. And the code for that is kind of weird because it, it looks really odd. It's like, if foo is greater than two, but less than five, then it's okay or whatever. And that 
I made a change to that the other day, uh, and I just put a link to the web.dev article on whatever the metric was that the code related to. And so now anyone who looks at that is like, oh, where, where did Jack get 2.438 and 6.179 from? It's like, oh, there's the article with the data uh, linked to. So it doesn't take much. It's just, but it's very useful to sort of almost leave a paper trail behind your, your chain, should it, should it need one. So yeah, I've worked where you have to have comments. It's enforced by some checker. And I think that's where people get the idea that comments are bad because if you're forced yeah, to exactly. write comments, a lot of them will be bad because a lot of code doesn't need comments. But sometimes, you know, you can write the cleanest code in the world, but if it is solving a hard problem or a complicated, tricky interaction between scroll positions and mouse positions or some race condition in some API calls, whatever it may be, doesn't matter how clear the code is, that's still weird. And you still are going to need some context to fully understand what's going on there. So another thing that kind of goes along with that is is testing. And we were talking a little bit about this when you were saying it's really convenient to have individual components, which I'm assuming make testing easier. Do you do testing for Chrome DevTools? Yes. Yeah. And particularly another motivation for the components was to enable us to test these things uh, more easily. So we've got a full set of unit tests on all the new stuff. Uh, some of the older code isn't tested or, as well, um, but that's something we're, we're working on. There's um, also end-to-end tests, which literally fire up the dev tools, you know, and click this, click that, and make sure a certain, certain thing happens. So yeah, the, the expectation is a lot of the new code is pretty well test-driven uh, and, and covered. Some of the old code, we'd like to get the percentages up, but it's kind of work in progress on that one. Do you use any tools for any of that that are kind of the same question I asked earlier, like any like things that people would recognize or that you you would recommend? Or is it a lot of just bespoke things written by the DevTools for DevTools? No, it's fairly generic. Uh, so our unit tests are ri- run using Karma. And I think we use, yeah, it's Karma. Yeah, I'm getting myself confused. We use Mocker as well, and then Chai for the assertions. Uh, fairly bog standard setup there again because it's it's just a web app. A lot of the unit tests look just like they would uh, outside of, of Dev Tools. For the end to end tests, we we control the page using Puppeteer, which is the uh, sort of npm package that lets you control a browser. Um, and that, those are mostly normal. We've written some helpers around that just to make it a bit easier. So we we have a helper called like Load Up Dev Tools and render this page, and you give it foo.html and it will just load it up and inspect it for you. But those, all they do is wrap a few puppeteer commands that anyone could could do. So no, there is no real bespoke internal testing um, infrastructure. It really is pretty much anything that anyone would use on a normal app. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jack, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything that you think that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to touch on? No, I don't think so. I think we're good. Actually, Jack, I I have a very important last question. Sure. So since you work on the Chrome DevTools, what's your like hot tip? Like what's the thing, what's the (laughs) thing in there that no one's, no one's been using that I've been missing all these years? Like, do you you have a favorite, like go-to recommendation for something our listeners can try out? There's a really cool panel called the CSS Overview panel, and it's experimental. I cannot remember if you need to turn it on or not, but we can find a link to the DevTools docs that would tell you how to get it. Um, but it gives it basically parses your page and gives you really good stats on the CSS in terms of how many different colors it finds, how many fonts there are, and loads more stuff that I can't even remember. And this was really useful for us, actually. We use this because one of the things we've also been working on is 
improving the consistency of the UI in terms of colors. So I'm sure everyone can relate to over the years, the project, you suddenly you go from like all the text being the particular color that it was decided to suddenly you've got like 10 variants of that just different <laughs> black color. Uh, so yes. we wanted to figure out we wanted to kind of find all those and move them into one color and, and store it as a CSS variable. And the CSS overview pane will show you, yeah, how many different colors there are, where they're defined and, and all sorts. So I I think that's a panel that isn't used as often as it should be, particularly if you're working with a designer or working on the consistency of a page. Uh, it's a good way to spot, oh, we've got one usage of this blue color and it should be this other blue color. So I like that panel a lot. Yeah, I'm very interested. I'm currently trying to find it because I think it is still, I found an article on it and I'm just looking if it's in experimental still. It's definitely marked as experimental. I cannot remember if you need to turn it on as an experiment or not in the settings, which you might need to. Oh, it might be under Oop. more tools. It looks like it's under more tools and then CSS overview. You should find it in there. That sounds really useful. We'll definitely link to that. Yes, you can also, if you just use the command menu, which is, is that shift control P? I can never remember if it's VS codes or, or the DevTools. <laughs> yeah. You pop that it's open and you just type CSS, it should pop up in there, CSS overview. Uh, but yeah, I've just found the documentation for it so we can uh, share a link to that. I, I love that. I think it's really, really useful and kind of hidden. Yeah, this is really cool. Paige, I, I can tell you we are using eight background colors and nine text colors on yeah. blues.io. Yeah. Which... That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> which immediately has me wondering like and also too it's handy because you can click on the colors and it'll show you the rules yeah. which is also very slick so yeah. that is an awesome tip I really like that one. <laughs> well jack where can people get in touch with you if they would like to learn more about what you do or see some of your articles or just find you you know around the internet yeah so i'm jack underscore franklin on twitter and it's uh, jackfranklin.co.uk for the, the blog and everything. So yeah, if anyone has any more questions, they're very welcome to drop me a tweet or, or anything. Awesome. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Well, now it is the time in the show when we move into picks. And these can be uh, things that we're reading, shows that we're watching, cool tech that we're working with, just anything that we think you as listeners would be interested in. So TJ, would you like to start us off with a pick this week? Yeah, my pick is going to be tech related this week. And it's going to be a library called Motion One. It is this tiny little library. It's like 3K, but it wraps the web animation API and just puts like, I, I like to think of it as like jQuery for web anim animations because it puts like a just a handy little API on top of it so that you can select items with selectors. Uh, it's got a couple other features that just sort of smooths over some of the wonkiness that is in that API. And it's tiny. It's it's written in TypeScript too, so you get like nice typings behind your animation as well. If you like me, can't remember the names of like the easing curves or any of that stuff that I constantly forget. So that's kind of handy too. So that is my pick. Nice. Jack, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, I'm staying on the tech nerd bandwagon <laughs> as well, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm going to pick a book called Crafting Interpreters, which is by uh, Robert, I think Nystrom, could be Nystrom. Apologies to, to Robert. Uh, I recently picked this up. It's a massive thick book all about writing your own programming language. And this 
appeals to me. It's something part of my computer science sort of background that I really enjoyed was learning about this. And this has been a nice refresher. It's a really chunky book, but it's got lots of exercises, kind of walks you through building it. And I'm finding it very interesting. To link it back to the show as well, I was talking about writing your own custom ESLint rules. And a lot of what Crafting Interpreters talks about with constructing programming languages, there's a lot of familiarities in there. So I'm, I'm really enjoying spending a bit of time going through that when I get a chance. Excellent. That sounds like a good holiday break read, yeah. maybe. <laughs> it's got an so, amazing little uh, logo behind it, too. I'm just stalking its website. Oh, nice. It's very to fun. Check that out. Yeah. <laughs> so my pick this week also is going to be a tech-related pick. And this is, I've been working on a side project lately to build a low-code dashboard where if you have, like, for for where TJ and I work, we have little IoT devices that you can actually get their GPS locations off of. So I thought it would be fun to take that data and actually put it onto a map and then also put some charts in because it does things like measuring voltage of the battery and temperature in the air and things like that of wherever the device is. So a library that I'm using for the charts portion with voltage and, and things like that is called ReCharts. And it is a React-focused or React-friendly chart framework. And it takes away, I think, a lot of the learning curve that you would have with something like D3 straight out of the box or maybe even some of the other more in-depth chart libraries because I don't need fancy visualizations. I just have some very basic ones that I'd like to display. And ReCharts documentation is really good. The community support has been great when I've run into questions that I've had about how to do certain styling, and it's really, really flexible. So if you're looking for something to do all sorts of different chart visualizations, bar charts, graphs, scatter plots, you name it, they probably have an example of it. Uh, I would definitely encourage you to give it a look. It's it's pretty cool and, and pretty quick to get up and running with, which is very nice. All right. Well, once again, Jack... Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see all of you on the next episode of React Roundup. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.